What is your purpose? Kind of a terrifying question, right? People spend a lifetime pondering that question with lots of mixed results. Some of us languish in indecision and anxiety for not knowing what we should be doing at all times, while other of us just tap into a seam of exactly knowing what we should be doing, aggressively going after cycles of growth in whatever purpose that we have chosen. Purpose is important, but a lot of us oftentimes overthink purpose or end up living a life that doesn't align to whatever purpose that we are actually seeking. Because if you spend your days poring over spreadsheets to find some sort of kernel of optimization, but really you want to be helping people directly, you're basically setting yourself up for resentment. And I know this sounds all great in theory, but it takes courage to live aligned to your values and purpose. And most of us don't spend the time actually seeking out what our purpose should be, hmm. let alone aligning it to how we live our lifestyle. This is where David Gowell comes into play. He is an exemplary purpose finder. After a tragic death in the family early on in David's upbringing, he was forced to figure out a lot all on his own. He made his way through West Point and then the military, which led him to Rally Point, where he currently serves as the CEO. There, he helps unite former, current, and future service members on the largest social network dedicated to those who serve. He shares his experience with you coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, David Gowell dives deep on purpose. He talks about the culture shock of non-negotiable feedback, selfless service, the foxhole method of business, building your own personal advisory board, and the conflict between making money and purpose. Point. Rally Point is the military's online network, so you can kind of think of it like a combination of LinkedIn plus Facebook plus a little bit of Quora, but just for the military. So we have 1.7 million members. Those members have generated over 460,000 public, tagged, and curated discussions about military life. So our members come to us to really connect with each other and the great organizations around us. We've partnered with the VA. Department of Veteran Affairs recognizes that as we grow, we reduce the stress on their system. We help educate our members uh, about the great benefits they provide and just all the great organizations out there that help vets. You yourself are a veteran. You know, I am. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the career story. You went to West Point. Like, all that, like, tell us a little bit about that. Yes, so I uh, started my military career at the party school in New York known as West Point. Uh, four years of fun. I graduated in 02. Within a year, I graduated from Ranger School and went right to Iraq. Uh, during that time, I met my beautiful wife, got married, took her to Germany, left her there, went to Iraq. And so I had a very typical military beginning as a platoon leader in an armor unit in Iraq. Had four tanks, 15 amazing soldiers. And the end of my military career was atypical, where I was incredibly fortunate to be given a job to teach leadership at MIT and the ROTC program. So in 08, I was transitioning out of the military with this network and this incredible ecosystem around me. I didn't really know the economy was about to crash, so I started my first company then. And by making that successful was uh, another incredible experience that I'd say was a bit of hustling. Yeah. And it was something that I probably couldn't have gotten in uh, any education otherwise doing it you know, on the job. Totally. And to kind of take us back, so West Point, what was that like, right? Because you hear a lot of stories. I'm sure some of them are true, some of them are not. You went through plebe summer, or is that Annapolis? Yeah, I don't even know. Yeah, yeah, plebe summer, you know, you're, you're a kid. 
from Connecticut. I think you had to get interviewed or approved by a senator, you know, of the state and everything. And so all of a sudden you're just like this kid coming out of high school thinking you're going to like take on the world. And, you know, then all of a sudden you just go to like a pretty serious college. Like, what was that like? Tell us a little more. Yeah, so it's very much a college that you go to class every day, but you pile on this entire military structure that for me, I just didn't know anything about. So my brother had gone ahead of me. Okay. He just kept telling me, oh, you'll figure it out when you get there. So I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just imagine waking up every morning, uh, roughly between five and six, and you have to get to formation and breakfast and you know, shine your shoes and, and shave and clean your room and do all these things because you know they're going to be inspected. Uh, you go to a classroom, you stand at attention when the teacher comes in, and it's this incredible experience that shaped the rest of my life because it taught me very quickly that you, know, there, you can accomplish a lot in one day if you're focused, if you're disciplined, if you take a lot of feedback. They give you lots of feedback as a plea, very direct feedback. And I think those are some of the things that um, I've taken non-negotiable feedback I like that those are some of the things that i've just carried with me through my career and even as a dad now talking to my kids and we don't do formations in the morning but might want to try i don't know yeah we'll, we'll see i think that would not be negotiable with the wife i think she would silence that pretty quick the west point experience was one that i think it, it depends on your personality if you're going to like it and there's some people probably far more competent and hardworking, intelligent than me that might not want to do it just because to have someone yelling at you that might not be a fun thing for some people yeah and i'm sure you had friends who were going to like yukon or like some other you know general public school like at west point do you like go home for the summer even or yeah. no, not really so the, the first summer you pretty much give up your summer after senior year in high school to yeah. go to west point and do the cadet basic training yep. and so i was very lucky because i lived in connecticut and had friends in the area and in fact i met my wife at a party at northeastern oh, uh, cool. up here in boston she was going to emerson my friends and I were able to get away for one weekend. Yeah. And funny story, the way that things work at West Point is you're not allowed to have a car until the end of your junior year, which means as a freshman, you can't really drive anywhere unless you rent a car or you have upperclassmen that are willing to lend you a car. So it was at the beginning of our sophomore year that I met my wife because some of my friends got a car from a senior it was a very old Volvo that had a flat tire and a dead battery when they got to the parking lot. So while I was still in class, my friends had fixed the car up, picked me up. We head to Boston just to go through tons of traffic. The engine actually caught fire at a gas station on the way there because it was so caked in oil. And then finally we got to the Mass Pike and we're driving down. Traffic clears. We're going about 75 miles an hour. And the front left tire goes bouncing off into the woods. And going about 70, the, you know, the rotor is getting ground down as just sparks are shooting out like a flamethrower from the bottom of the car. And my buddy was able to downshift, get us off the road safely. Car got fixed. Longest drive ever. And the next night, I meet my wife at a party. So. That's pretty cool. And we still get back on time on Sunday with the car fixed without getting in trouble. So. So it was a good time. The upperclassmen reimburse you for all the repairs or no? No. I think uh, he was happy that we you know, got the car back safe. And uh, we were happy that we actually got to get away for a weekend and got a good story out of it yeah, and yeah. a wife. There you go. That's cool. What, what was like the hardest thing about that time? I'm sure like getting up at 5 a.m. every day is, is not fun. You know, you get used to it. But what was maybe one of the hardest things about those four years? I think the culture change. Yeah, I was student council president in high school. I felt yeah, everyone knew I was going to West Point and there was this experience of, oh, you know, Dave's going to go save the world. And yeah. you get there and you are the bottom of the barrel. 
And it's not just the bottom of the barrel where you know what you're doing. It's just being clueless as to this whole new world you've just entered into. And you see these generals and these people who have been in the military for decades where all this stuff is second nature. And I was stumbling to memorize all these different things that I had to say perfectly or you know, be in trouble and have to do push-ups or get to the, you know, the back of the line or whatever. Yeah. So changing what I had known as my culture and the expectations I had for my daily rhythm yeah. uh, to just be sucked into something new, you know, it's really an assimilation. Yeah. I think that's what the military has gotten good at over a couple hundred years, is figuring that the idea of war fighting yeah. is very different than what civilians have to do. And so there needs to be a process to quickly indoctrinate you and get you comfortable with being a warfighter or realizing you're not. You were in Iraq then. Tell us a little bit about that as much as you can. Like, you know, you had a platoon. Like, what were you doing? Yeah, I'm sure you had multiple missions while you were there. Yeah, so I got to Iraq in 2003. And things were still unknown. I was in Ranger School when Rangers jumped into Baghdad Airport. And so at the time, we still didn't know if it was going to be a you know, weekend war, a two-week war, a two-month war. We had expected that we had overwhelming force. But then this whole insurgency thing grew. And so my primary mission there, I was a platoon leader. So I had a tank platoon with 15 soldiers. And we would go out and we would do everything from raids to where we suspected bad guys to be. We had tanks, so we would actually go look for IEDs with the explosive ordnance disposal guys who would then, uh, you know, we'd set up a perimeter and we found an IED that would send the little robot in yeah. and it would detonate it. But then we were also trying to build a country. So we would get off our tanks and go shake hands with people that we didn't know if they were gonna try to kill us or if they were you know, actually you know, allies. And we would speak broken Arabic and try to engage with them in a way that made them realize they should join us and not join the insurgency side. Yeah. And so it was this, exceptional experience to have at 23 yeah. and to try to rebuild a country and actually to explain to teenagers why we were there. Mm -hmm. Like I've had teenagers throw rocks at me mm -hmm. and I'm sitting there on the tank with all this weaponry and of course we're not going to re-engage the teenagers and it's just this incredible experience to be a leader, to be a follower, to be learning mm -hmm. and you know, be going after a mission. So that was uh, my experience in Iraq. You know, your brother, you know, went through, sounds like he went through West Point, you know, he was in the military as well. Why was this important to you? It might have changed when you were getting out of high school to going into, like, actually being in Iraq, but when you take a step back and you look back at MIT, Iraq, you know, West Point, et cetera, and Germany and some of the other places you were probably stationed, like, why? Yeah, for me, the military was a organizing uh, element of my life. So my father passed away when I was seven. And my mom was a part-time nurse when he died suddenly, and she had to figure things out. And she got into hospital administration and did a lot of things that I admire her for so much today. And in, in retrospect, yeah, I had to figure out a bunch of stuff on my own because my mom was figuring stuff out for my brother and I. And I always felt that as a kid and into my adolescence and my teenage years, I had all this ambition but no direction. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then ultimately when my brother went to West Point, I heard about this leadership thing. Yeah. And I said, that sounds cool. I don't know what that means, but it feels like something that would help me chart my course in life. Because I kind of felt like a speedboat in the middle of the, the ocean where I felt like I could do anything, but I didn't know what that would be. Yeah. And so by getting into the military, you know, the idea of selfless service 
and all these people waking up early to do hard things all day, to give up weekends, to give up that college experience that my friends were quite visibly sharing with me uh, whenever they could. I realized that you know, being part of something bigger than yourself, giving more than you're taking, it was exciting and was thrilling. And it felt good at the end of the day, no matter how hard you worked and how many times you failed at what you're doing, you knew that what you were doing made you feel good. That's what the military did for me, sure. and unfortunately I feel that the military doesn't prepare most people to exit service yeah. in a way that is going to give back to them and, yeah. and actually thank them uh, for what they've done and prepare them for a civilian life. Yeah. And that's where you know, I'm happy that we're doing that today. That's a big thing, you know, that's been in the news in so many different ways, right? You know, with the, the VA, you know, like with certain funding from Congress, like all types of different stuff of like how we can do better you know, by veterans, essentially. And so where does Rally Point come in? What do you guys, I know you mentioned, you know, on a high level what you guys do, but why is that so important when someone's, you know, either in the military still, transitioning out of the military, or, you know, has been transitioned but is looking for help? Like, why is Rally Point so important, or why is what you do so important? So Rally Point has 1.7 million members. Of those members, about 43% are still in uniform, 46% are veterans, and about 11% are civilian supporters. About 70% of our members are under 35, and about 80% of the traffic is mobile. What all those numbers indicate is that we have a pervasive view into military life, not just those in uniform, not just those who are veterans, but their families, their caregivers, their survivors. We even have about 40,000 recruits and pre-commissioned cadets on Rally Point trying to ask our members what is actually true because they heard something from the re recruiter and they don't know what life will really be like. Yeah. So where we fit as the connector, of people across branch, across conflict, across the lines of transition and families and, and really all of the different elements and the people that make up the military community. We started as connecting people to each other and more recently we signed a partnership agreement with the uh, Department of Veteran Affairs to where now we are helping to connect our members directly with some of the most valuable services and programs that we can yeah. based on what our members are saying they're interested in, what they want, what they don't want. And we're trying to figure all that out in real time to make it more efficient for someone to come on our site and quickly find things that are going to be valuable and impactful to help them make their lives better. Sure. And if we go one step down, bringing them together and then having all this content that you mentioned where they can figure out, you know, did the recruiter lie to me, bend the truth a little bit too much, or, or what's it going to be like when I'm stationed, XYZ place, those types of things. What's the ultimate other outcomes that you're helping with people with some of these, you know, veteran affairs type of benefits? Like, is it getting help with you know, PTSD? Is it like, like, what are some of those things like one click down? Yeah, so well, you know, just going on the PTSD effort. So we have a, a great partnership with the National Center for Veteran Studies at the University of Utah. So Dr. Craig Bryan and his wife, Annabelle Bryan, lead this program that brings their cutting edge, clinically proven post-traumatic stress treatment to our members who are indicating signs of stress online. So imagine you're asking for help because you're struggling with insomnia, anxiety, depression, et cetera, online. Our members are already talking to you about their challenges and, and connecting on a peer-to-peer -peer personal level. Yeah. And then you might you know, see an ad that says, you know, are you struggling with post-traumatic stress? Do you want to potentially go to Park City, Utah for a fully funded two-week program where you show up and you have a high probability of coming away without clinically diagnosed post-traumatic stress? That is just one example, and that's an effort. It's a two-year program that we are working with them on. And even going upstream from that, while you're active duty, 
when you're in the military, you are in a hierarchy that does not promote networking. Sure. It's not cool if you're a private and you go to the bar and hang out with the general down the street and yeah. you know, have a drink with them. Yeah. Our culture is not about that. The way you excel in the military is you perform. The badges, the tabs, the ranks that you earn are on your uniform. You don't have to sell yourself. You don't have to convince people to do things with you. There are personnel organizations that push you up through the ranks every few years and will give you a few options based on your performance. And there's that machine. That machine is something that we complement by enabling our members to ask the broad Rally Point universe about questions that they have going through that process or to view what other people have already asked. And that's something that, that didn't exist, at least in the civilian user experience that people expect from a Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, et cetera. And that's you know, one of the key values we provide to our members well before they are dealing with the stress that came from the trauma from the combat experience in active duty. We want them to thrive in active duty and the guard, the reserve, and anything like that. you speaking about it, it feels like you have a calling. I feel kind of like almost insecure about being like, you don't want to talk about like pricing software, you know, like that type of thing. Like, tell me a little bit, like, why are you so passionate about this? Obviously you're in this and, and, and I know it's kind of an obvious question, but like, where does that come from? Like, is this something that you recommend to people to like find that passion, find that purpose? Like, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so going back to, you know, when I was younger and my father passed away, trying to find that direction or that purpose was kind of defining experience for me. And now I realize that that's a great way to feel good about everything you do in life is when you have a purpose and it makes sense to you and no matter the good or the bad that happens throughout your day, you're able to find that North Star and keep marching towards it. And so the things that I've seen in my career is that when I've been able to help people in the military realize the impact they can have on others and the purpose that they can have be helping their soldiers despite their challenges, it actually lessens the stress of their own challenges because of that goodness that you feel when you're actually helping someone else out to achieve a mission. There are some people that give too much of themselves and actually don't have their own purpose. And maybe their purpose is unfortunately detracting from the greater good of, of their own success. And there's gotta be that balance. If you give too much of yourself, unfortunately, I think that leads to problems for a lot of people. But you, know, you mentioned pricing software. The business that you're building is enabling careers, you're mentoring people, you're doing things that regardless of the, you know, the product you're selling and whether or not that helps veterans with post-traumatic stress, yeah. Yeah, I think having a purpose that could be you know, helping to mentor a coach and take people from one level to the next yeah. can fit well within any business, no matter what you sell, whatever you deliver. Yeah. For me, knowing what your purpose is, if it's helping veterans or it's helping mentor people or it's you know, giving back to the community that gave you a lot, there could be so many different purposes that people come up with, but you got to define it, you got to own it, and you got to stay true to it as you go through your career. It's interesting because, you know, you had like Jocko's extreme ownership, you know, there's a lot of purpose-driven life, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there, but at least to me, like the, the millennial generation, which I'm a part of, and you're part of technically as well, like finding our purpose, no one gives us the direction. You know, you had a very, you know, unique situation, but like, and obviously you went through, you know, West Point where it's like, I don't care if you want the purpose, this is your purpose right now, and, and you kind of develop that. Do you think that it's harder to kind of find that purpose because of all the distractions we have? Things are pretty good in life, you know, overall, not for everyone, but for net-net. Like, is it, is it hard to find the purpose? It could be, because there's so much distraction. And I think the opportunity to go online and be 
guided by software platforms and people who have the incentive to drive you to a certain direction could pull away from what you might have set out to do that morning. And so the opportunity to fast fail is probably the greatest opportunity that we all have. Because we're exposed to so many things, we can go after something. And if we think our purpose is one thing, we can go try it. And if it doesn't feel good, it doesn't feel right, then we can fast fail and move on. If it does feel good, and if it does feel right, you can continue to entrench yourself and get deeper in it. And I think that's where the age we live in with technology and content and people, especially if you live in a great place like the Boston area, you can get to a lot of folks and continue to drive towards finding something. Sure. If you fail enough times, you'll have that discomfort with those experiences so that when you do find the exciting thing, it'll naturally rise above the rest. Yeah. And it'll be something that you want to tell your friends, your family about, and you want to expand upon. I do think that there's a lot of opportunities to be distracted from finding purpose. Sure. But I also see that there's a great deal of opportunities. If you're willing to embrace failure, and mistakes and be uncomfortable and go do stuff that you know, maybe you're not as qualified to do as you'd like, but the OJT of that on-the-job training of actually going through it and, and tripping a few times will help you determine if you want to get better at it or if you just want to throw it in the rearview mirror and move on. Yeah, I mean, you got kids, you know, you're going to give advice, obviously, to them, but if you're giving advice to someone who just, like, doesn't know their purpose, doesn't know what they want to do, um, which are a little bit different things, but you know, what would it be? Would it be, you know, go try a bunch of stuff, go read a bunch of stuff? Like, what's like the, you know, the right against the rail practical advice there of like what they should do? What are like the first three steps? Yeah, I like to talk about the foxhole method of business, okay. where imagine yourself in a foxhole with the enemy out there. You're going to look around you at the foxhole and you're going to throw, shoot, fire, launch, whatever you have at the enemy. If your enemy right now is not knowing what that purpose is or what you want to do next, look around you what you have. You might have resources that might be a neighbor who's a CEO of a company. It might be your parents have a certain network. It might be that you're really good at music. It might be you love art. Whatever it is, look at the assets you have and then figure out what you can do with them to do a test, to experiment and to go down a path of you know, seeing. One of the examples of what I did is I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got right out of the military and I got to MIT, but I had an economics degree. So I said, okay, well, maybe I'll end up in finance. So I found a gym in downtown financial district in Boston, and I was one of the first guys in the gym every day. Mm. And I didn't wear headphones because I didn't want to give the, the impression that I didn't want to talk to people. And I'd wear like military shirts or you know, shirts of the school I'd gone to or was going to. And I used that as a networking you know, mechanism to basically allow people to you know, start with something I liked to do as I wanted to work out. I didn't want to be the, the networker with a pocket full of business cards and a drink in my hand awkwardly saying things that I didn't know what to say. So I used that experience to get in front of people and to meet people and ultimately to help me become better networked in the space that I ultimately wanted to get into. Yeah. And so in that respect, I was physically fit, I was active, I used that as something in my foxhole to throw out the enemy of being clueless about where I wanted to go in my career. Yeah. And I ultimately found the co-founder of my second business people who became my investors, customers, et cetera. And in one of those cases, I found a guy who actually let me shadow him for a day at a, a business that I now know I did not want to be in. And halfway through that day, he pulled me aside and said, Dave, you know, I don't want to say this in front of the other younger people, but this job is going away. And, and you probably don't want to get into it. And this was a guy I'd worked out with, but I'm guessing he had a stronger connection to the people in that office. But 
he felt I was trying and I was hustling, yeah. and he wanted to pull me aside and say, you know what, yeah, this might not be the right industry for you. Yeah. Now, maybe he didn't like me, and he just didn't want me to go into his company, and hey, that's cool. But the idea is trying something out, doing something based on what you have around you to then go after what you think you might be a good part of your career. What was the role? Maybe uh, not the place, but what was the role? It was basically in a financial services company at a trading desk. Okay, got it. No, that's cool. And so, I mean, to maybe summarize there, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's just, you know, it's literally just take ownership of the problem and just do everything you can to, like, figure it out. And figure out what you're good at and what you have that could allow you to pursue something easier than otherwise. I may want to be a pro sports player right now. Sure. Probably not the best investment of my time yeah, yeah. over the next five years. If table I got tennis. A, table tennis, maybe. I don't know. I've seen <laughs> Forrest Gump. I yeah, can't yeah. compete with that. But that's, that's the idea is that figuring out whatever you have that can differentiate yourself in a sea of noise and people hustling to try to get what they want, yeah. you've got to find a way to get what you want and you know, partner with people that sure. can complement you in ways that you, know, you might be able to find a co-founder, find a company that could use your skills where you could learn a lot there. Yeah. It's all about being self-aware with what you have and what you don't and being yeah. candid with what you don't. Surrounding yourself with people who will tell you what you don't have as well, I think is very important. No matter what you do, you don't want to be the emperor with no clothes. You, know, you want to be uh, around people that are challenging you to do better and that you know, you're doing the same stuff. Yeah. I mean, we talked about a little bit about distractions, but this seems somewhat obvious, right? Like, hey, you don't know what you want to do, go figure it out. You know, go read, go consume information. And for most of us, we're in a good position where you know, yeah, we've all had struggles and adversity and things like that, but we're, most of us are in a position where, like, there's not really an excuse for not doing that, right? Why do you think that happens? Like, do you think that there is a, a point of just people don't want to, they don't realize what purpose can do for them? Like, what are your thoughts there? I think the world is a challenging place for a lot of different reasons. I believe that the concept of finding a purpose seems hard. Yeah. It seems overwhelming. And it's easy to take things that are hard and overwhelming and say, I'll do those tomorrow. And I think the best way to get at it is simply you know, finding ways to come back to what makes you happy. And if you're happy now doing what you're doing, then try to find ways to increase that, make other people happy. We like to talk about reinforcing your position in the military. If you think you're in a good position, just keep trying to make it better. If you don't think you're in a good position, like, you know, there's some times that we'd set up camp at overnight in ranger school and we realized there's a stream going through it. This is the worst place that we should have set up. Yeah. So you got to move that position, which could be really difficult in the middle of the night in the darkness and bad weather with the enemy out there trying to attack you. Yeah. But sometimes you got to dig deep and change what you're doing. Then there's sometimes you just got to keep reinforcing. And I think that, you know, shifting versus reinforcing could be a good approach at any point in life, at any point in a career to say, okay, am I, am I happy with what I'm doing? Do I see growth in this opportunity? And maybe you see growth today, but a year from now, the environment changes, the market changes, the landscape changes. You know, constantly, you know, maybe setting those uh, milestones to reevaluate where you're at and whether or not you, know, you are moving towards a purpose, even if you don't know what it is today, or if you're in a box and you're not sure that the, there's a high probability of you finding that purpose anytime soon. What's a good sign that you're not happy or not fulfilled? I know that's a really existential question. You and I don't know each other that well, but you know, I worked worked for the government, Fort Meade, you know, right out of school. Then uh, ended up, you know, working at Google. You know, left the bureaucracy, even though it was really fulfilling. Like most fulfilling job I ever had was at Fort Meade. Google, it was like 
wow, there's so many calories being shoved down my throat, you know, in terms of pay, food, all these different things at Google, mm -hmm. but I just feel like listless. But there's so many people who stay there for 10 years, even though they have the same feeling, because they're like, I'm confused as to why I'm unhappy when all these things around me are so happy, right? Yeah. And then, you know, a lot of folks in like startups, like they find so much fulfillment because like they're on the ground, you know, they're actually like doing the thing, they're putting things together. Like, I guess like to bring it back to actually a core question, like what do you think is a good sign that you're like in a job that you're just like, you gotta get out, you gotta move on? I think people know it innately, like those folks that yeah. you mentioned at, you know, great tech companies that have all these benefits, they wonder why they're there. Like if you have that thought, I think a great exercise would, to go through would be to say, what other options do I have? What are sites like LinkedIn shoving down my throat as other jobs yeah. that based on my experience could make sense? And then there's always a tremendous value in building your own personal advisory board. Sure. People that you look up to and you say, I wanna be like that, that woman, that man, that leader, and grab a coffee with them once in a while yeah. and tell them those feelings. Share with them the exciting things you're doing and share with them the doubts and the concerns. And they might be like, man, you gotta stop thinking that way because what you're doing at Google is providing the world's leading capabilities in these 10 areas. Like focus on what you're doing well and that might be enough for that one coffee. Like, you're right, I am happy. Yeah. <laughs> or you might realize, you know, I don't care about those things. Yeah. Getting input from people who have gone through the path that you have is one of the things I do every day with our business. I actively pursue board members, investors, advisors, people that fill in the gaps that can help me look around the corner for the company to make sure that what I am planning to do sure. is filled with their experience. Yeah. Because that's life. Life is going through new experiences that you haven't seen before. And trying to figure out an aligned strategy for how you live your life and how you do your job, lead your company, grow your company, whatever that is, I think that's psychologically helpful. To, to do both in a similar path and ultimately look to other people to help you figure that out. How does RallyPoint make money? What's the business model there? Great question. Yeah. So RallyPoint's business model is very similar to that of LinkedIn. So we have marketing solutions and talent solutions. There are a lot of people who want to hire our veterans. And there are a lot of people who want to get their products or services in front of our veterans. We don't charge our members anything to use the site. So we keep the lights on and grow the business yeah. by enabling those job posts, those job tools, and ultimately those ads to get in front of our members. Because there has to have been, or you can at least imagine, a conflict between making money and the purpose, right? And I think that there's some of those things that, that are probably conflicting for individuals on, on many different levels, right? Where you know, you're at Google, oh my gosh, I have a mortgage, I have all these different things, but I really just don't like the purpose of what I'm doing, but I gotta support my family, right? You know, for you guys, it might be, ah, there might be this really cool ad unit or thing that we can sell or something like that, but maybe it's just not that great for our base, right? And I, and I don't know why, but like, there's probably many things. Like, how do you square those things? Like even personally, but maybe as a company as well, like how do you guys think about it? So that is the core of our strategy is to be at equilibrium. The key stakeholders in RallyPoint are our members yeah. who use the site for free every day. They are currently serving their veterans, their family members, their caregivers, their survivors. Mm -hmm. And then there are our customers, USAA, Columbia University, uh, the National Center for Veteran Studies, Cohen Veterans Network. These organizations pay us to get access to our members and figuring out that equilibrium and filtering out the bad stuff. 
there are financial services companies that all only they want to do is get in front of military members to give them high interest rate loans. We don't let them on Rally Point. There are many other categories of business that want to get in front of the military to do things that we don't see as being in their best interest. We are not experts in all of those, sure. but we have some good left and right limits, as we like to say in the military, that, that keep us in the center mass of the, the types of advertisers and employers that we think are good. And so much like Uber has to create a good experience for their drivers and their riders, we create that good experience that's for our members and for the, the advertisers and the companies that hire our members yeah. to ultimately continue to iterate yeah. and think about how do we improve both at the same time ongoing. Yeah. You ever gotten that wrong? I'm sure we have. Yeah. And going back to the whole advisor thing, we actively pursue advisors who know a space very well sure. to try to put up a barrier. When I first came in as CEO, I noticed an ad on the site that felt like a brand I had seen as one of those shady financial companies outside of a base. Yeah. And we paused the campaign, we took a look at it, and sure enough, they had actually changed the business model a little, but was still not what we wanted. So we ended up canceling their campaign, giving them their money back and yeah. saying that, sorry, this is just not what we want to put on the site. Yeah, no, that's cool. Just because I think it's super important, like what's the advantage to hiring a veteran? So there's a idea that a lot of people have of a veteran. And especially because this is not the immediate era after World War II where everyone knows a huge military population, there's a lot of conceptions of what a veteran is. From what I see and what I've experienced, the idea of taking this incredible war fighting experience and using it as an area of adversity to grow from, that is the benefit you get by bringing a veteran into your company. You can take someone who has done things that most civilians can't even imagine and bring that into your culture and help educate that individual on, on your civilian work, but bring from them what they've experienced in this whole profession of arms that allows us to all sleep peacefully at night that most people don't understand. And there's a lot of learnings on both sides there. And so I think it's that opportunity that, in fact, a gentleman named Ken Falk, who wrote Struggle Well, talks about that idea of struggling well, of embracing adversity as a one of the greatest education moments we can have that you can't really script the things that happen in combat like you can in an education environment and academia but after the fact looking at that and growing from it and not thinking about post-traumatic stress but think about post-traumatic growth and how you can take that and use it as a mechanism to sharpen the spear that you take towards adversity in the future i think that is the way that um, i personally feel that i the value i bring to my company and that I see uh, veterans of all companies able to bring to theirs. A massive thank you to David Gowell for sharing his wisdom on this episode. Now you have what it takes to discover purpose for yourself and your team. Today we talked about the culture shock of non-negotiable feedback, selfless service, the foxhole method of business, building your own personal advisory board, and the conflict between making money and purpose. Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell in the show, we would appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen and watch. The podcast gods really tend to like that type of thing, and we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest-growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. Subscriptions.